welcome to the Field Talk podcast from the Linder Farm Network, the voice of Minnesota agriculture. I'm your host, Dan Lemke. Thank you for joining us today. The Linder Farm Network is a network of nearly 40 Minnesota radio stations bringing you up-to-date information on what's happening in Minnesota agriculture. We provide about 90 minutes of programming every day, but sometimes that's not enough to give you all the information you want or need. The Field Talk podcast allows us to dig a little deeper into topics that affect farming and our rural lifestyle. On this week's episode, we'll talk with Monty Peterson, a North Dakota farmer who chairs the U.S. Soybean Export Council. We'll talk about USEC's efforts to build preference for U.S. soybeans around the world and where he sees opportunity emerging. But first, a new startup company called Lockerel Technologies, with origins at the University of Minnesota, has made a scientific breakthrough that could put corn-based products into new and exciting places. I talked with Lockerel Technologies co-founder, Chris Nicholas. First, just uh, you know, tell me a little bit about uh, Lockerel Technologies, kind of uh, the, uh, the, the foundation for it and how you all got started. Yeah, so Lockerel Technologies is an exciting startup. Uh, we're spinning out of the University of Minnesota. So Professor Paul Dauenhauer in the Department of Chemical Engineering uh, came up with an outstanding uh, catalyst innovation that allows us to convert lactic acid into acrylic acid and acrylates at extremely high yields. So higher yields than uh, what anyone else has uh, so far accomplished. And that's actually a, a transformation that uh, researchers have studied for over 80 years in which the industry has been looking for a bio-based uh, acrylic source uh, for at least the last 15 to 20 years. It's just that no one has come up with the reaction that you can accomplish at uh, right around cost parity to today's uh, petrochemicals. And so we think that we finally have a, an innovation that will be able to deliver bio-based acrylics to the market at, at or around uh, cost parity to uh, the products today. So then what are some of the uses? Where might these products end up? So yeah, uh, acrylics have broad use across uh, modern life today. So they're, they're used in everything from like the latex paint on the wall behind me to things like super absorbent polymers that are used in diapers, um, detergents. Uh, they're used in a lot of different coatings formulations on both uh, wood and concrete. And uh, they're even used in things like uh, acrylic yarns and fabrics that uh, we wear uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's a, a very broad swath of application across modern life. So what is it about corn that makes it a, a suitable feedstock for a process like this? So corn is an outstanding sugar source. So for those who don't know, uh, corn is the predominant sugar source for all of North America, also over in China. And sugar is then fermented into lactic acid. So we use the, the corn-derived sugars in order to, uh, to have success at uh, acquiring uh, lactic acid feedstocks. Uh, so that's done uh, at several places in the United States today. And then our technology, the Lockerel uh, Technologies uh, innovation utilizes the lactic acid feedstock in order to convert that into acrylics at uh, extremely high yield. And so overall, we're able to go from, say, corn to, to paint at uh, uh, price points that make sense for the overall market. 
As a startup, uh, you know, the, the sky is sort of the limit at this point. But, uh, you know, what uh, do you see as far as, you know, potential utilization for corn? Obviously, uh, as a large corn producing state here in Minnesota, we're always interested in finding new ways and new avenues to to use and create value for that uh, that product. But uh, I, I guess, how do you see this as a, a potential new uh, avenue for corn utilization? Yeah, so we fit into a, a new utilization uh, or a bio-based uh, product uh, type uh, innovation. And for us, what it would look like, we're, we're aiming at about a 30,000 metric ton uh, plant that converts lactic acid to acrylic acid uh, that goes along with scale of a lot of the other um, transformations that, that you would take to convert corn into lactic acid. That would look like about 2 million bushels of corn uh, per 30,000 metric tons of acrylics that were generated. And overall, we'll need at least uh, 100, uh, 120 of these plants in the United States, 250 uh, globally, uh, in order to achieve uh, today's uh, acrylics production. So that's quite a bit of corn up to uh, what we calculate is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 700 million bushels of uh, corn, uh, where we would provide both additional markets and also um, abilities for resilience in the market uh, as you take a look at something like ethanol. So ethanol could be one of the, the feedstocks that we wind up using for a product called ethyl acrylate, for example. Where are you at in the process now? I mean, you, I know you uh, just came on board here in the last uh, you know month or so as, as, a, as a company, so still in the, in the early stages, but where are you at and, and what's the process from here on out? Yeah, so we refer to ourselves as a seed stage uh, company. So we're setting up a laboratory uh, and we have embarked on a three-year R&D runway uh, with additional uh, scaling uh, that's necessary, some process um, uh, modifications and um, resilience that, that we need to develop overall. And so after about the, those three years, we should be able to offer process licenses and catalyst sales into the overall market in order to allow the, the conversion of corn into the acrylics that we so desire as a bio-based alternative to today's petrochemicals. And also, I understand you uh, were awarded uh, recently a National Corn Growers Award for your, your innovation and your uh, new uses. Tell me about that, if you would. Yeah, it was very exciting. So the National Corn Growers, uh, for the last uh, several years, uh, this is now the third iteration of the contest. They've uh, sponsored a contest called Consider uh, Corn Challenge. And so what they're looking for are new uses and uh, ways to improve market resilience and expand uh, opportunities for, for corn overall. Um, we were one of the, the winners this year as they took a look at our overall innovation and the, the ability that we have in order to convert the corn-based sugars into uh, interesting products that the, the market is super excited about and very helpful to to have them on board with the, the recognition and uh, was excited to go pick up the, the trophy actually. We've gone through an overall uh, process of figuring out the, the location for the company, right? So corn is a significant product all the way throughout the entire uh, upper Midwest. And uh, we eventually decided on Chicago as the, the research uh, location for the overall uh, company. That's Lockrill Technologies co-founder, Chris Nicholas. Meanwhile, the Department of Agriculture estimates that the U.S. will export more than 2 billion bushels of soybeans during the 2021-2022 marketing year. Cultivating an emerging market into a regular customer of U.S. soybean products can take years or even decades. 
But for farmers like Monty Peterson of Valley City, North Dakota, that effort is necessary to build soy preference. Peterson chairs the U.S. Soybean Export Council. You know, as chair of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, I mean, obviously you have a lot of responsibilities there. But first and foremost, you know, we understand you are a farmer. So tell me a little bit about your operation there in the Valley City area. Yeah, well, you know, I'm uh, I'm located in the southeast part of North Dakota. Uh, you know, probably about uh, 60 miles west of the Red River, and uh, you know, I suppose it's uh, 70, 80 miles uh, north of the South Dakota border. So that kind of gives you an idea about what uh, what part of the state I'm from, and and uh, I've been uh, you know in a corn and soybean rotation here for uh, a good number of years although this is still uh, you know hard red spring wheat area of course when i got my start farming that was it was hard red spring wheat and, and soybeans and sunflowers and barley and just about any crop you can think of is uh, you know it's probably been a, a part of the rotation at, at some point but uh, i've been totally dedicated to corn and soybeans uh, for a number of years here now, so uh, family operation that's uh, that uh, you know I uh, I'm carrying on the tradition I guess that my uh, great grandfather started when he immigrated here uh, back in the late 1800s and uh, and I, uh, originally homesteaded uh, not on this exact farm but uh, close by here and uh, and so like my forefathers I've been following in the same footsteps. Uh, you know, uh, I've enjoyed every moment of it. It's uh, it's just uh, you know, there's something about uh, production, agriculture, and farming that gets in your blood, and and something that uh, you know I've been quite passionate about. You're also no stranger to uh, commodity group activity and involvement. Tell me a little bit about some of the the things that have led up to you uh, becoming a chair of the U.S. Soybean Export Council. Maybe it's not too much different than a lot of people that, you know, end up getting involved. Uh, you know, uh, I, I can tell you that my start uh, started, uh, you know, at a local uh, county meeting of the local crop improvement association. And uh, and along with that, there were elections, uh, you know, for county representative uh, uh, to the soybean checkoff uh, here in the state. And, uh, Never ever thought anything about uh, about it uh, before that, but got uh, poked in the ribs by a couple of my neighbors and said, "Hey, if we elect you, would you, would you uh, would you represent us and find out what the heck they're doing, spending our uh, checkoff money, and, and you know, let us know if it's uh, if, if it's good or not." And and so, you know, that's how I got my start. Got elected as a county representative, and then as a uh, as a uh, district uh, representative uh, for the seat on the board of directors for the North Dakota Soybean Council, uh, spent seven years there. And, uh, you know, the more I got involved, uh, the more uh, interested I got. Um, and, uh, and after serving uh, that period of time there, I guess there was about close to a year off, but uh, the Growers Association said, hey, we would really like you to come on our board. And uh, and then uh, you know got appointed to a seat on the American Soybean Association, and, and so I've been serving in that capacity, and, and and then along with that, received an appointment from the American Soybean Association to serve on the board of directors of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, 
So uh, here I am, you know, 15 years later and still involved uh, with uh, promoting and advocating uh, on behalf of, uh, of U.S. Uh, soybean farmers. What is the mission then, Monty, of uh, the U.S. Soybean Export Council? I mean, the name obviously uh, gives a pretty good indication, but to tell me about its mission and, and how it accomplishes that. With the U.S. Soybean Export Council, USEC, uh, I mentioned that an appointment came through ASA. Uh, there are uh, four uh, directors that are appointed uh, to serve uh, on USEC's board uh, from ASA and likewise uh, from USB. So uh, the United Soybean Board, the American Soybean Association, uh, years ago, uh, had, uh, had the thought process of uh, creating uh, an entity dedicated uh, to promoting U.S. Uh, soy around the world. And uh, along with that, uh, uh, we, it, we created this membership organization at USEC, and uh, we have 15 members uh, that serve on the board of directors, uh, representing uh, all aspects of the industry. We have, uh, of course, uh, AASA and uh, USB, the founding fathers, are represented on that board, but we also have an allied class uh, that represents uh, not only uh, qualified state soybean boards uh, across the country, but also uh, other members of uh, industry, uh, those that are related to uh, some way uh, to the U.S. soy uh, industry. And we have an exporter class uh, made up of, uh, you know, small, medium, and large exporters that represent uh, uh, their interests on our board and uh, all with the common goal of uh, creating a preference uh, for U.S. soy uh, uh, all around the world and, uh, and also working on uh, and ensuring market access into those markets. And I know in many cases there's a lot of education, a lot of working with uh, end users that uh, helps to build that preference. Tell me a little bit about kind of the, the process and in, in, uh, how you go about building that preference. Yeah, well, I, let me... Let me start out by saying that uh, USEC is uh, headquartered in the in the uh, uh, St. Louis area. Uh, we uh, we work in a number of countries around the world uh, in different regions, and we have uh, boots on the ground. Uh, you know that are either uh, direct uh, uh, employees of USEC or contractors that work with USEC in uh, working with uh, uh, folks that uh, are looking to. Uh, increase and uh, acquire their soy uh, protein needs, uh, either for uh, human consumption or for feed in, uh, in livestock. And, uh, and USEC works at uh, putting the connections together, working with uh, the folks that are looking for soy protein uh, and connecting them with uh, the people that can uh, that can provide uh, their needs, uh, the exporters and uh, and the industry that can help uh, help them out in uh, in providing what uh, what they're looking for uh, when it comes to soy protein. Are there certain countries that are um, emerging? I know, as you said, there, there's boots on the ground in pretty much all of the world. Uh, I mean, are, are there some areas we're obviously familiar with China as, as the, the big dog, so to speak, but are there emerging areas that to really hold some potential that you think uh, farmers should know about? There's a number of areas. Uh, you know, uh, we, we have our mature markets that we have been uh, working with uh, for a number of years, like the European Union, but uh, of course, and 
uh, China, uh, you know, is is the is the huge customer for U.S. soy, but they continue to grow. Um, their needs continue to grow, but I think uh, you know some of the more uh, dynamic and uh, uh, faster growing areas of the world might be uh, down in that Southeast Asia, uh, the South Asia region. Uh, we've taken particular interest in India. Um, but also uh, surrounding countries in South Asia, of, of, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. Uh, we can look at the Americas region, and we can look at uh, Central America for uh, you know some pretty uh, positive, rapid growth in, in that uh, area of the world. So uh, you know, I, I, and we continue to do some work in in uh, in Africa. So, uh, you know, there's just, uh, you know, the one thing I'd have to say, Dan, is that, you know, that, that continues to make me uh, so encouraged is uh, this, this dynamic uh, ap- appetite, uh, you know, for soy and soy protein around the world. We continue to see increased demand around the world, and, and we just have to uh, continue to reach out and, uh, and work on supplying that need. So then what is the best selling point for U.S. soy products? Obviously, there's competition from our neighbors in South America. But what are you, what are you able to point to as keys for why folks should buy their soy products from the U.S.? Well, I think there's a, there's a few things there that, uh, that could be pointed out. Uh, certainly, uh, trade servicing, uh, you know, uh, providing the... Uh, providing the services that help educate uh, the end user on the use of soy and soy protein. And and that might need anything from uh, developing uh, human nutritional needs. Uh, It might, uh, it might, might uh, be something like uh, uh, procurement, uh, you know, the opportunity to, uh, to, uh, uh, instruct on how uh, soy is procured and traded around the world. It might mean something like, uh, um, you know, putting uh, the help with nutrition in feed rations uh, for for whatever uh, animal sector they might be looking at uh, enhancing uh, uh, meat production with, whether it's uh, whether it's poultry or whether it's uh, uh, you know, the swine industry or a fast-growing uh, aquaculture market. Um, you know, but I think there's there's other things that uh, give us a competitive a- advantage. Uh, certainly, um, the ability to uh, ship a consistent quality product. Um, you know, so many areas of the world do not have the capacity uh, or maybe even the climate to uh, procure uh, big portions of their soy needs at once. They need timely, regular uh, uh, shipments on a regular basis, uh, and, and they need to maintain that quality. You got to think about the areas of the world that probably, you know, have a, have a little bit of an issue in storing soy in a high uh, temperature, high humidity climate. And, uh, you know, uh, soy is, is like uh, other commodities. Um, it, it has to be uh, cared for in storage in order to maintain its quality. 
so I think, uh, you know, uh, the importance of having uh, a good infrastructure here in our country uh, to, to uh, handle and maintain quality uh, on, a, on a regular, timely basis for our customers is so vitally important. From a grower's perspective, Amy, obviously it's nice to know that they have someone working on their behalf to uh, develop those markets because uh, these markets don't just happen. I mean, the demand doesn't just come about on its own. There, there's there's someone that uh, is there working on their behalf to help uh, create and uh, continue to, to service that uh, that preference. Well, I think that's what makes the difference uh, about uh, you know what we what we do here as far as uh, promoting U.S. soy. I think. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's that one-on-one uh, time with our customers. Um, it's it's follow-up. It's uh, offering trade servicing, and it's uh, providing opportunity to market more U.S. soy. As a soybean producer, we can't be uh, so naive to think that they will just come knocking on the door and and that uh, you know all is good. We, there is uh, there is a responsibility on our part to market. And, and provide uh, information on what we grow and how it can be utilized uh, within their segment of the industry. That's Monty Peterson, chair of the U.S. Soybean Export Council and a farmer from Valley City, North Dakota. That's all for this week's Field Talk podcast. Be sure to visit linderfarmnetwork.com for more podcasts, videos, and up-to-date information. Thank you for listening.